Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My days working and taking care of my little ones can be a lot. I checked out care.com and it was so easy for me to find local, experienced, and background check sitters. Finding our babysitter was way more affordable than I thought. Care.com makes it super easy. Search for qualified candidates. You can view their profiles, read reviews and ratings, check their availability, send messages directly, get the help that you need. Care.com should be every person's go-to. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. The first two years of Risk episodes, the ones from October 2009 to October 2011, were behind a paywall for a while. So now, every other Thursday, we're rerunning them for free. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today, in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible, and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the 20th episode of Risk ever to be made. It premiered in June of 2010. Now, there is an incident or two of animal cruelty that are described in this episode. It's an episode we call Animal Wild. Riskies, welcome back to our weird and wonderful ride on the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and today's risk is called Animal Wild. That's why we started with Worm Burner, and the good Sir DJ Vernon Lenoir is behind me now. Folks, you know we love to experiment, and today's show is balls to the wall that way. This is the first episode made up entirely of studio-recorded stories. We're going to dig our toes deep into nature and start with a real natural, the lovely actress Rachel Wecht. We call this Breakfast.
I grew up in Minnesota, and in Minnesota, lots of people have cabins next to lakes. This is where you go on the weekend, up to the lake. My parents have a cabin in the center of the state on a little lake that was once used as a fish hatchery. Last winter, a few days after Christmas, my mom and dad and I decided to go to the cabin for a couple of days. Now, I love the cabin in winter. The entire lake freezes over and it's so thick that you can walk straight across it. So it's early in the morning, like about six or so, and I wake up and I go downstairs and my mother is already up and in the living room in her nightgown practicing her Tai Chi Cha. Now, Tai Chi is the martial art where every move is done like really, really slow. And she has all the curtains open, letting in as much light as possible. And she's going through her Tai Chi Cha moves and she looks really, really cute. We're being quiet because my dad is still asleep and we don't want to wake him up. So we're just being kind of quiet and chit-chatting about, um, you know, what we're going to do that day and how nice it is to be up at the cabin. I look out the window and at the base of the window in the snowbank, all of a sudden out pops this tiny little brown field mouse. And I point and I was like, oh my God, mom, look, look at the mouse, look at the mouse. And as we're looking at this one little mouse sitting there, another one pops out and then another one and then another one and then another one until all of a sudden there's this like little pile of these brown field mice just kind of running around on top of the snow. And I'm thinking to myself, you see, this is why you have a cabin. This is why you get a cabin in the middle of the woods on a lake. It's for moments like this. It's for moments where it's six o'clock in the morning. It's just you and your mom and she's doing her Tai Chi Cha breathing and you've got a good cup of coffee and you can look out and you can see the lake and it's all frozen. And there's snow everywhere and there's a pile of baby mice just playing outside your window. This is why you, you have this place out here so you can just get away from it all and just enjoy the peace of nature and it was so perfect so we're watching these little mice play when all of a sudden and out of nowhere in swoops this bird and he swoops in and he picks up one of the field mice and then flies away with it and my mom and I are stunned and we're standing there for a second and and I and I was like was was that was that a bird and my mom's like, I, I think so. And then, whoosh, the bird appears again and grabs another mouse. And then all the mice start running around like crazy. And my mom and I are screaming and screaming because this bird just keeps going, whoosh, 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 and just coming in and picking up these mice one at a time. And my mom and I start yelling, get back in the hole, get back in the hole. And the mice are just blindly like running around in circles. And they're only like two inches away from the hole that they popped out of the snow. But for some reason, they couldn't remember where it was or they were ignoring us and they wouldn't go back in the hole. And my mom and I are screaming and this bird just keeps swooping in and swooping in and picking off these mice and then like everything started happening in slow motion and it's like I could see the terror on the little mice face and I could see the bird swoop in and his claws extend and him grab a little body and the little body's wiggling and trying to get out of the the claws of this bird and I feel like there should be things on fire in the background and machine guns and bombs going off and like some John Woo soundtrack and stuff and it's just horrible and my mom and I are just screaming and screaming and are yelling woke up my father and he comes into the living room and he's yelling what's wrong what's wrong and we're just pointing out the window yelling get in the hole get in the hole stupid baby mice and then it was all over and they were all gone and my mother and I stopped yelling and we just stood there next to each other looking at the empty patch of snow where the baby mice once played and I was stunned and 
And I turned to my mom and I said, Oh my God. And my mom says, Well, that's nature for you, honey. What's pancakes? So this is what it's like to fly, little mousey. Oh, oh, God, this is horrible. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I just had to eat your stomach oh, there for God, a Oh, God, I am so scared to die. No, oh, you don't have to be scared to die, little mouse. No? No, when you die, all your troubles go away. What do you mean? I'm dead. Well, you're not dead yet, actually. I'm keeping you alive because I like a little fight in my prey. Oh, God, you're torturing me then. I'm being no, tortured. No, 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 I'm just preparing you for the astral stroll you're going to take on your way up to heaven. Astral s- Heaven's bullshit. No, no, no. Heaven is a real place. I've flown there. You've I'm flown a- to heaven? That's right. I can fly as high as I want. I'm a hawk. What's heaven like, then? Well, it's like, uh, have you ever been inside of a koosh ball? Uh-huh. It's like that, only larger. Uh-huh. And it smells as strawberries, uh-huh. and all the ladies' breasts squirt milk like the oh, fountain at Lincoln Center. Oh, you're making it up now. Nope. Well, the thing about Lincoln Center, I am, but all the breasts, those aren't there either. Oh, God. I'm being lied to and I'm being eaten. Do you feel like you have ghost legs? Like uh, the, the men in the army? Because I ate your legs, but do you feel like you have legs? I still feel like I have legs, I'm yeah. tickling your foot. <laughs> See, I wasn't. You don't even have a foot. I'm digesting your foot right now. Oh, God. Uh, I hope Jesus gives my foot back. Jesus hates mice. Oh. Who told you, Jesus? All the Jews. Oh, Jews. Every autumn, starting when I was around seven or eight, my mom and dad and I used to drive to the White Mountains in New Hampshire to see the changing leaves. My favorite stop that I always look forward to every year was this it was this place, this odd combination petting zoo and low-budget amusement park, strangely titled Fantasy Farm. They had, uh, at Fantasy Farm, dare I call them rides, uh, like this one involving a track, a metal track, and small train cars you could sit on and crank in front of you in kind of a circular motion with your hands. Yes, you you powered the ride yourself. At Fantasy Farm, I think the closest thing to an actual farm animal that they had was probably a flamingo. 
the furthest thing that they had from a farm animal would have to be the gorilla. The gorilla sat in this very unjungle-like room with a little window at the back and a large glass window at the front where humans, like my dad and I, could get a good view. There was also a long metal tube at an angle, kind of a 45 degree angle that went from the outside world through the glass uh, into the fluorescent lit gorilla room, a, a bridge between worlds, if you will. My dad and I would always visit this gorilla. We'd watch him sitting there bored watching us, but he did have feeding time to look forward to. And thanks to my dad, uh, something else. On this particular visit, my dad had the inspired idea to step up to this enigmatic metal tube as though it were sort of a microphone. This involved my dad crouching down quite a bit, and uh, he started making noises into the tube. Um, He started doing this sort of rhythmic, guttural, gorilla-esque breathing uh, through, through the tube, sort of it sounded sort of like this <laughs> the sound reverberated back to us through the glass and really you know through going through the tube and then through the glass it it sounded otherworldly like this kind of distant chanting mystical magical gorilla just this sort of Upon hearing this sound, uh, the real gorilla looked up suddenly with this expression almost of sort of recognition, uh, like this, you know, a sound he hadn't heard since he couldn't remember when, familiarity. He looked at my dad from across his bright white gorilla room, and uh, I'm not exaggerating, slowly he started to kind of bob to the rhythm, kind of, he slowly started doing this kind of gorilla dance. (laughs) He started bobbing his head up and down, first very gradually, uh, then, you know, more and more, and then really emphatically up and down, you know, full on headbanger. really getting into it. So at this point, my dad is clutching the metal pole with both hands, breathing more heavily, more loudly. (laughs) My dad is sort of bouncing up and down to the same rhythm as the gorilla. The gorilla's bouncing. They sort of, they're just, they're getting this communication going. Uh, The gorilla's shaking his head side to side, throwing his head back, dropping it down. And now the gorilla is not only bobbing rhythmically to this he starts to clap literally clap his hands to the beat so there's this i mean it's really this incredible kind of cross species communication and at this point parents and children are starting to sort of gather around and just watch this i mean it's amazing and of course i'm thinking my dad is just the coolest dad ever. I mean, he's totally just having this amazing moment with this gorilla. <laughs> My dad's eyes are open wide. <laughs> the, 
the gorilla now closes his eyes, shaking his head, nodding, jumping, clapping. <laughs> People are gathered around. I'm just looking, just filled with pride and, and amazement at this scene that's unfolding before me. <laughs> and suddenly the gorilla jumps back onto what I can only call a shelf, revealing his long, veiny gorilla erection. And then he ejaculates all over the glass. Before we can even understand what has happened, he's the gorilla is just sitting back, totally relaxed, looking very satisfied. And uh, my dad and I are just frozen here. It's just absolutely silent. This tableau of this post-orgasmic gorilla and my dad still kind of leaned over this metal tube but now just wide-eyed in horror uh at this point parents and children um you know with these kind of looks of horror on their faces uh are just agape at the scene at the gorilla and and there's this moment where everybody sort of turns and looks at my father and the parents of these children start kind of slowly but purposely shepherding their children away from my dad, uh, you know, who I guess at this point sort of looks like this pied piper of cross-species sexual perversion. Um, and, and, they, and they just start, you know, sort of slowly pulling their kids away. Bobby and Janie, let's, uh, let, let's get away from the strange mysterious tall man who just brought this gorilla to orgasm and uh meanwhile the gorilla is just lounging on on his gorilla shelf uh casually sniffing his own semen so there's this moment where everybody's kind of cleared out and it's just me my dad and the very happy and relaxed gorilla and i remember my dad kind of turns to me and we we look at each other and we both just spontaneously laughed. Really, what can you do but laugh? Later on, sitting in the car with my corncob pipe that said Fantasy Farm in my mouth, I thought about what had happened and I thought my dad must be a very powerful man to have such an effect on an animal that's so large as a gorilla. As the years passed, we did go back to Fantasy Farm, and my dad and I did visit the gorilla, uh, but neither of us ever came anywhere near that long metal tube again. was a skinny skinny snake and it could escape from any cage or run a rampage then invade all that you cherish cause terror on a terrace whenever you would stand it your endeavor was embarrassed i rarely settled for less than what merits it's fair to say that i'll be in the garden sharing carrots and when it slithers toward me then a foresee trying to chop it up so i can turn it into stored meat the battle rages on till i let him get the best of me and sink his venom through my denim uh.
This is Risk. We heard from a folk icon of the 90s, Victoria Williams, with her song Animal Wild. A uh, little something from the fellas at NathanAndJoe.com. A trip to Fantasy Farm with our good friend Adam Griffin. And a little sing-song something from Sose in the end. That's S-O-C-E. And this is Cow Cube behind me now. Here's a very dear friend of mine, someone I've been swapping stories with for many happy years, a brilliant writer, an amazing DJ, and a usually happy dog owner. This is Smith Galtney with Albaline and Kate. So my partner, John, he's away on business. He's in New York doing things. He's been there for about a day or two, and I'm in the house all alone. We live on a cottage on a lake in Maine. And I wake up early one morning because our dog, Kate, she's an English bulldog. She's about four and a half years old. She wakes me up in the morning, as she usually does, just by, like, slapping her front paws on the side of the bed, like, feed me. So I get up. This is maybe around 6.30. I get up. I feed her. I turn around, head back to bed, look out the window, look at the lake. And it's like a beautiful sunrise across the lake. The sun's glimmering off the water. The kind of thing that maybe a lot of people would see and go, oh my God, what a gorgeous day. I think I'm going to go jogging or maybe start writing in my journal. But the first thing I said after I looked at it for a couple of seconds was, hmm, yeah, I think I'm going to crawl back in bed. And then when I wake up, it's noon. I'm waking up at noon on a weekday. So, you know, if I was a rational person, I would probably say something like, okay, I've gotten way too much sleep, so just to get the blood flowing, I think I am going to maybe go for a bike ride or go for a nice brisk walk outside. I need to really get on board and do something. So what I decide to do is masturbate. So I do not go to the nightstand by our bed where we keep our regular, you know, lube and other accoutrements for lovemaking and whatnot. I go to my own little private drawer in my desk where I keep DVDs of certain movies that I'm very fond of, certainly specific scenes in those movies that I'm incredibly fond of. And that's where I keep my Albaline. Basically, Albaline is a moisturizer. And if you ask an actor what Albaline is, he will say that it's very good for makeup removal. If you ask a gay actor what Albaline is, he will tell you that it's a fantastic, unparalleled, incomparable jerk-off cream. So I take my Albaline out, and the dog comes over, and she's curious about it. But she's curious about anything, so I'm just kind of like, oh, get away, get, get away. And when it's all over, it's like, they call it the little death for a reason. Suddenly, I feel really foolish. My hands are totally greasy. I'm sitting there with my pants at my ankles, and Albaline does not come off very easily. Hand soap won't do it. You have to use Dawn detergent because Dawn takes grease away. So after I finish all of that, I'm like, I have to go out and do something. I just have to go do something. I'm going to go do something. So I decide it's time to run some errands. And so I say goodbye to the dog and I'm like, see you later, Kate. I'll be right back. And she's still on the couch, just kind of like snoring away. You know, a couple of times that we've been coming home, she's rummaged through the garbage. She's got into the kitchen garbage can and just literally littered the kitchen. And then one time we came home and she had somehow gotten up. I mean, this is an English bulldog. They are not like the most nimble creatures in the world. She had gotten up on top of the kitchen table and she had basically 
knocked over, you know, we do a lot of baking, so we have all these flowers and like these big, you know, plastic Tupperware kind of vats. And she had knocked one of them over and there was just like flour all over the kitchen floor. And there was a trail of flour that led into the living room. And there she was in her dog bed. She wasn't in her dog bed. Like half of her was laying out of the dog bed, like onto the floor. And her face was totally covered in flour. And she just kind of looked up at me like, well, man, that was a great party, man. You missed it. <laughs> and so as I'm pulling into the driveway, part of me is sort of like, oh, is, is she going to be okay? Am I going to walk into another scene? And I'm like, oh, no, she's fine. She just needed to get some aggression out. She's done. And I open up the door and I look at the kitchen floor and I see, I notice that there's this sort of yellowish, almost transparent kind of goop, like sort of a pale yellow. It's almost as if somebody, I mean, this is a horrible way to explain it, but it's almost as if somebody who is really dehydrated had peed inside of a jar full of semen. <laughs> so then I walk into the living room and she was just like looking at me like dogs tend to do in this situation, like... Oh shit, I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't doing anything. And I look over and I'm like, bad dog. And she kind of turns away. And I see that her backside is also sort of covered with this very mysterious, strange, yellowy, pearly sort of substance. And I'm like, oh my God, she must have sat in something. And that's when I look at the rest of the house. And then on the floor is the plastic tub of Albaline, which has been chewed and cracked open. The thing was about 9.5 tenths full. And this thing is completely empty. It is totally licked clean. That's when I noticed that more yellowy, pearly, mysterious substance is sort of coming out of her backside. So this stuff is basically going right through her and her body is just like, keep it going, keep it moving, keep it moving. And I freak the fuck out. I'm horrified. I'm about to start dry heaving. So I bring her to the screen door. I open up the door and she just tears out of it. And as she's running, it was as if there was a squirt gun within her anus and it was just squirting out this regenerated makeup remover. She goes tearing off into the woods with projectile anal leakage just squirting out and squirting out of her. And she goes running into the woods and she's just running, not figuring out what to do and squirting and squirting and squirting. And I'm sitting there like running along the edge of the woods like, Kate, 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 oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And finally she finds a place to sit because all of the abalone had just created this thoroughly lubricated passageway through her entire body and she just squatted and everything just kind of dumped out for a minute and then finally she came back to me and then I brought her back inside and I was so furious with her and I was trying to clean up the place everything had this stuff on it and as I'm cleaning it I can feel like through the paper towels like this warmth and it's really 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 grossing me out and instead of like cleaning everything up i just decide to just lie there in all the filth once again not being proactive about anything and i lay back on the couch totally unaware that certain huge parts of the couch had already been sort of blessed by her so i sit up and my back is covered 
in all of this regenerated makeup remover. And I'm just like, oh my God. So I changed my shirt and it's about 15, 20 minutes later. And I go and I check on her. She was sitting down. And when she got up, she turned around and she was like, oh, what's this? And she basically was licking it all back up. And then I'm freaking out because I'm like, no, 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 no. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. Don't eat that. That's when I just fucking go ape shit. It's like this dog has turned a really shitty day into just the most self-defeating experience of my entire life. And suddenly I just fucking lose it. I took off my shoes and I'm throwing them at her. I'm like, you fucking whatever. You know, this is all your fucking fault. How could you do this to me? How could you do this to me? And I'm basically like acting like my mother would. This is all about how could you do this to me on such a day just when I was trying to pull it all together? You know, regardless of the fact that like I had an entire fucking day to like make something of it, you know, do something productive with my time and I didn't. But now it is this poor little defenseless creature who has unknowingly ingested all of this petroleum jelly and whatnot. Suddenly it's like it's her fault. Throwing things at her, she's ducking this way and that. And again, English Bulldogs, not the most nimble things in the world. I am happy to say that none of it hit her. It was really kind of one of those moments when you're like, oh, wow, you know, you kind of wonder how you would behave, you know, grace under pressure. If I was being tested on that, I would have failed and not very admirably. I guess I just have to say that dogs love us unconditionally. And unfortunately, we're just not very capable of that. James, could you explain? Why is the dog... Oh, my God! Uh, it might have got into one of my uh, beauty products. You're... Do you, uh, do you have jerk-off lotion? Yeah, I have a lot of it. I have about a tub of it underneath our bed. James, I don't understand. Why I have jerk-off lotion? Well, two things. One, I don't one. understand. Am I, not, am I not giving you what you need? I love having sex. Do you sex. not like my hand job? I love them. And also, um, the dog seems to be squirting shit. Um, all over our walls and our West Elm furniture that we got and the CB2 uh, table that you enjoy so much. And I'd like to know who's going to clean it up. And also, um, is, is it because I squeeze too hard or is there chafing? I, no, no, no. I just, I'd volunteer you to clean it up. And yes, there's chafing. Okay, well, what if it stains the paint? But also, do I not play with your balls enough? No, you play with my balls enough, but I don't think it's going to stain the paint. What, has he been eating corn? And also, is it better if I like spit on your penis or something? Uh, no corn, but uh, yeah, I think you'd, I'd like you to spit on my dick. Okay, well also, if I give you a little how's your father up your bum bum, mm-hmm. uh, are you going to shit on the wall like our dog is? Probably going to shit on the wall, but I'll probably have to give you one too. I grew up with my grandparents. I didn't know who my dad was at the time. I didn't see my mother a lot, and even though I had some brothers, I didn't see them, so I was kind of an only child. I was picked on a lot in school because I was kind of a chubby kid, didn't have a lot of friends really because I was easy to pick on, I cried a lot. 
And so I didn't have a lot of self-confidence growing up, and I didn't know how to interpret those feelings that would come up. And so I think like a lot of troubled kids, and apparently like a lot of serial killers, I took out my frustrations on animals, namely the cats that were at the house. There were always cats around. We usually always had at least three permanent cats. Sometimes there would be more depending on how many female cats we had and how many litters they would drop because we never, ever got them fixed. My grandmother didn't feel like spending the money on it. And so there would sometimes be just dozens and dozens of cats running all over the place. Now, I didn't do any, like, mutilation. I didn't, like, really torture the cats. I was more like what I would consider a cat bully. I would do things that were a little mean, like I'd put lemon juice into their mouth and they would kind of foam and spit it out. It wasn't something that really hurt them, I don't think, but they survived. And I would spin around getting a little dizzy on the floor after my grandmother would mop it, so it was very smooth. I'd get them so dizzy, and I thought it was the funniest thing to see them running around afterwards. And then I would just chase them relentlessly until a point to where they were, like, backed into a corner, hissing at me with their claws, striking at me if I tried to touch them. And so growing up, my arms were always really scratched up with scratches and blood. Psychologically, I guess, is how I tortured them in a way. Now, I had a cat named Clifford. I was out playing in the backyard with Clifford, and I picked him up, and I put him into the bird bath and just got him soaking wet. And he runs off, and then I just went back inside and played. My grandfather had just gotten home, so the car motor was still very warm, so it made it the ideal place for a soaking wet cat to go dry off and warm up, and also just to, you know, get away from the trauma that I was giving it. And then my grandmother had to go somewhere, so she was kind of in a hurry. She started the motor, and the motor made this stalling noise, because that hole where Clifford was was right around the fan belt. I just remember that sound of not being able to fully start, and then there was this this horrible meowing sound from the cat, you know, as it's being pretty much just sliced to death by the fan motor. And I ran out, and she had turned the car off, and we got out, and there was kind of that general confusion about what was that, but then kind of the realization of like, oh, I bet it was the cat, like, great. And I got down on my hands and knees, and I looked under the car, and I saw blood just dripping down from the motor. It was a very dark, maroonish, that very, you know, iron-rich blood just dripping down. And I knew I have killed this cat. I knew at that moment that the cat had gotten into the motor because I had thrown it in the birdbath. It was my fault. It's possible that if I hadn't have done that, what I thought just harmless act at the time of my thinking, this cat would have been alive a little longer if I had not done this horrible thing to it. From that point, you know, at six or seven, I never harmed a cat again. I was always very nice to them and made sure that they were very loved for me. I even now cats it for my friends and, like, don't even charge them. I'll just say, hey, just put some beer in the fridge. I really just want to hang out with your cats. But that was that turning point where I knew things had to stop or things could get worse.
Last week we sort of delved into the fact that you you started killing very young. Can you, mm-hmm. can you mm-hmm. sort of talk a little bit more about that? Well, um, when I was six, uh, first time I threw a cat against uh, a house. Mm-hmm. Um, How big was the house? Bigger than the cat, and I guess that's what's important. Yeah, okay. I'll write that down. Uh, and then when I was seven, uh, you know how ants line up? Uh, like an army? Like, like an, an army, army on yeah. the way to like anywhere? So mm-hmm. I killed my little brother. by the hilarious Nathan and Joe, and this is Haley Wojcik we're hearing now. Now we have one more tale of man and beast today, Mr. Beowulf Jones. We call this Best Friends. Keith, my roommate, my best friend in the world, he broke. I'd never seen anyone break before, and I'm hardly one to point fingers because at the time I was sort of broken myself. I'll tell you a couple things about Keith. He was beautiful, and he was disturbed. Not too many people knew about the second, but everyone knew about the first. It was the story of my life. Any girl that I was into, as soon as I brought her home to meet Keith, game over. They were into him. And it's not that Keith did anything to provoke it. He just looked that good. I woke up in bed to this foreign sound. This... It was inhuman. It was, you know, the sound that you get when you call a fax machine by accident? I walked out to the kitchen, and the sound was coming from Keith's mouth. There he was, without his shirt on, frying eggs at the stove... He was sobbing, and it didn't stop. All day, all week, it just kept going. I couldn't take it. I needed it to stop. So I talked to him. I told him some jokes. I mean, you know, I'm a funny guy. I can make people feel cool when I need to. And it worked. He lightened up. For the first time all week, I actually saw him smile. And uh, I thought, I'm getting somewhere, you know. Now is the time I need to seal this deal. So I did what I did when I needed to feel better. I pulled out a bag of cocaine. I offered him a line, and something in his eyes told me he didn't want it. 
And oh, his mouth told me he didn't want it too, because about a week ago he distinctly told me, you know, I think I should stop doing blow, it's really putting me on edge. But I offered him the bill, and he snorted the line. And he did it for me, you see. He took the line so that I would feel better. Because he was concerned about the position his breaking was putting me in. And then I walked out. I thought, hey, I did my part. My hands are clean. So I went out to act like Joe Hollywood for the rest of the night. When I got home later, first thing I noticed was his mother's guitar, which he cherished, was gone. That never left the apartment. Uh, a lot of his clothes were missing. After that night, right after he and I got high, Keith chose that time to leave New York, go back to his parents' house in Ohio, lock himself in the bathroom, and slit his wrists. Now, the suicide was unsuccessful, but the question remains, did I fail my best friend? I don't really like to think about it, but... I mean, probably I did. I mean, I certainly didn't save him. The bottom fell out of our relationship. I lost everything. We lost our apartment. I lost my furniture, my bed, my movies, my stereo. I was homeless. I was even sleeping at theaters uh, that I worked at, unbeknownst to the owners of those certain theaters. Months later, I was walking with Amy, uh, my girlfriend now, but uh, at the time just friends. I was walking home from one of those theaters. I was still homeless. It was 3.30 in the morning, freezing. As we're going through the streets, I see this dog just sort of illuminated by the moonlight. Uh, I saw this poor, pathetic German shepherd like drinking this disgusting water out of this muddy puddle. The dog looked practically crippled. I could see that he couldn't use his back legs. And I, I walked over to him cautiously. I held out my hand and I said, Hey, boy. Hey, boy. And he just looked up at me and went, <coughs> And Amy freaked out. She said, you know, just get back here, leave the dog alone. And I said, no, it, it's okay. He's, you know, he's not going to hurt me. He's just scared. Because if there's two things I know about... It's dogs and rejection. And this dog was not about to reject me. I approached him again, uh, held out my hand cautiously, uh, and I, as I got closer, I saw this dried blood on his matted fur, and it made me furious, because how could someone see an animal, a creature, in this condition and just walk away and ignore it. Making an effort to look cautious, I, uh, for the dog's benefit more than mine, I, I sidled up next to the dog, I put my back against the concrete and slid down to the pavement. And the dog sat next to me, but, but it wasn't easy for him. It took about five minutes of twisting and turning before he could get in a position that was comfortable. And, kept contorting with pain with, with each particular twist. Amy went back to her apartment to get some blankets as I sat there with him. I started to reflect, you know, is when you're 
homeless and sitting with a crippled dog at 3.30 in the morning will tend to make you do. I was petting the dog. He seemed comforted. And comforting him comforted me. And it was a powerful moment because his eyes, just the soul of these dog eyes, went right through me. And I chose to make him my responsibility. I couldn't save my roommate, but surely I could save a dog. I decided I'll take him to a vet. And that deduction wiped me. I was spent. That is the most logical conclusion I've ever come to. Next morning, I called a car. But when I loaded the dog in the back seat, the driver flipped out. He said, no dog, no dog, no dog. And I said, this dog is hurt. He is in pain. He needs to see a doctor. But the driver just pushed right past me, and he ripped the dog out of the back seat. No regard for the animal. And the dog started howling in agony. And I was furious. I wanted to kill him. But I didn't want to hit him. So I just spit in his face. And the driver was furious. But he didn't want to hit me either. So he spit in my face. So there we were, both of us furious, but neither willing to hit the other, so we just kept spitting in each other's faces. Finally, we got the dog to the vet. But when we got there, I had to leave to do a tech rehearsal for some show. And when I got to my rehearsal space, I was there for two minutes when Amy called, and she said, they think it's cancer. On top of his injuries, they determined the dog suffered from arthritis... Most likely, some idiot hit him with a car and then drove away without stopping to check on him. They gave the dog pain pills, arthritis pills, recommended a local kennel called Ava's Play Pups, which was wonderful, and and that was our day. Emotionally, I was wrecked. When I checked him in at the kennel, they said they needed a name. So I called him Dell, after Dell Close, who's this legendary improv guru who, at the time, I admired. I'd never had a chance to meet Mr. Close. He'd passed away about ten years earlier. But as I left the kennel and I was looking up at the sky, I needed to talk to someone. And I don't believe in God, so he was out. So I decided to talk to Del Close. I, I said to him, I said, look, I'm not asking anything for myself. I'm not asking you to give me a home or give me money or or give me a job. Just help me save this dog. Next morning, I begrudgingly made my way to the kennel. I couldn't bear to spend another minute watching this dog suffer, but I'd made him my responsibility. And he was depending on me. I couldn't betray that. I shut my eyes as they opened the door to bring him to me. And then, BOOM! He just zipped down the stairs, fast enough to break the sound barrier. He genuinely seemed a brand new dog. He was jumping up at me, even using one of his back legs. His tail was wagging, his tongue was hanging out, it looked like he was laughing. I mean, whatever was in those pills, it worked. So, Dell and I hit the street. Me and Dell. Walking through Brooklyn, a boy and his dog. I mean, me and Dell felt cool. We felt real cool walking through Brooklyn. We felt so cool, it was like we had a fucking clavinet playing behind us, a Harlem clavinet. Like, wah, 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 everywhere we went, Dell was my second. 
Or maybe I was his. But we were in it to win it. Wherever we walked, people looked our way. And he and I were just proud to be with each other. And let me tell you something about Dell. Dell loved the ladies. Anytime we walked past attractive ladies, suddenly his arthritis would get real good to him again. He would, uh, he would start having more trouble with those back legs. The women would walk up to him and say, Oh, you, you poor thing. They would start scratching him, scratching his belly, scratching his undercarriage, scratching his ears, scratching his shoulders. And they would look at me with sympathy and say, Are you taking care of this dog? And Dell was loving it. As a friend of mine said, Dell was pimping and limping. But when I took Dell back to Ava's Play Pups, I did see the telltale steel cage, and I thought their facade was shattered. But what struck me as odd is that in this huge room, there was only one of them. So I said, is that where the dog sleeps? And she said, no, 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 we only put the dog in the cage when we need to blow dry his hair. This dog, apparently, is staying in some bed and breakfast salon, getting his hair and nails done. I'm homeless, but this is where the dog is staying. <laughs> but I couldn't keep it up. Even with the 50% discount that Ava was giving us, because she thought the fact we were trying to save Dell was noble, I mean, I didn't have a job, I didn't have money, I couldn't take care of myself, let alone this dog. We tracked down this... Uh, Amy tracked her down. Um, it was this woman upstate who has a German shepherd farm or something. She came down to get the dog, and Dell knew something was up. I, I almost couldn't take him a walk that final day. And he kept looking at me like, Everything all right? Everything okay here? Everything's good? Is there something we need to say? And he sort of froze when the truck pulled up. Instinctively, he knew this woman was coming for him, I guess. And I felt like I'd betrayed him, like I'd stabbed him in the back when I wrapped my arms in his undercarriage and hoisted him up and put him in the back of this truck in a steel cage. And he didn't bark, he didn't resist, he just stared at me in disbelief, no idea what was happening. Like you was saying, what's going on? What, what's this all about? And as she drove away, he just continued to maintain that gaze, just staring right at me. Like, certainly this must be a joke, right? This is, this is gonna stop. And he, as the truck went off into the horizon, he, he never broke his gaze. And, I don't know, I was, I tried to save him. I, I don't even know if I helped him, but I did the best I could.
Well, that's about it for today, folks. This is Rodeo Ruby Love you're hearing. We're going to go out with a truly great band, Shudder to Think, with their version of Animal Wild. And don't forget what this guy once said about Risk. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. and save at Ashley's anniversary sale with Hot Buys, your choice of colors starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases and shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval, no minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.